Hello and welcome to The Cupid Couch, the podcast about love, sex and relationships, both present and past. My name is Genevieve Gaunt, the creator and host, and you can find visual content to go along with the show on the Instagram at The Cupid Couch. And if you're new, I'd go back and start with episode one. Welcome. This episode is about sex, fantasy and fetishes, about our desires on the shadowy side of the sexual landscape. But what is the shadowy side? Well, it's fair to say that when it comes to human beings, we have a split between what we think and what we say, and also what we want and what we do. The same goes for sex. Society tells us what is, quote, normal, but underneath the lid, underneath the veneer of civilization, lies a much darker, more complex, dirtier world. From ancient sex manuals to the first sex encyclopedia to sex parties, this episode will explore the erotic from fetish to fantasy, the meaning of perversion, and questioning where the boundary lies between the kinky and the immoral. I speak to a porn star and a friend who lives out his fantasy of sleeping with a porn star. To friends who have threesomes and question the meaning of fantasy. Two actors will read extracts from a filthy letter and a filthy sex manual from 1665 that advises how to be, quote, a good fuckster. More of that to come. When I talked to writer Alex, 54, about sex and society and the meaning of taboos, he pinpointed for me the exact illicit delight in fetishes and fantasy. He said, You know, the hardest question often for people to answer in life, and myself included, is what do you want? Because actually what you want might be a collision in yourself. There are things you might want that would make you appear more and more less like yourself, more and more acceptable to society, more and more successful in a formal world. But underneath that may lie things that you really want, which are transgressive. That's sadomasochism, that's violence, that's um, humiliation, that's, you know, all of those, you know, I mean, it's still a mystery. One thing I find is a mystery is how the tabloid newspapers are built on this story. They relentlessly show shock and moral outrage that human beings do distressingly self-destructive things. (laughs) They do it over and over again. And they need not worry. There'll be another one tomorrow and there'll be another one the day after. Because, you know, society is a fiction. You know, society is a construct. And human beings have been brilliant at creating fictions that hold them together, that cease to prevent them from being violent or to each other or you know so it's 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 our imagination and our violence that put us in the position we're in so homo sapiens destroyed homo neanderthalus because not because we were necessarily smarter or kinder or more sophisticated that's quite the reverse the neanderthal was more sophisticated kinder and it wasn't just because we were stronger or more violent that's not necessarily the case either was because we had developed an imagination and that we could outbox them. We, we got ahead. We were able to imagine if we do this, then that will happen. And, the, you know, bless them, the peaceful, lo- peace-loving Neanderthals, um, they just couldn't get that far ahead. So we outflanked them, if you like, in a sort of military term. We just outflanked them the whole time and destroyed them. 
And that fiction goes on, that ability to imagine goes on to religion, it goes on to, you know, the first villages, the first societies, how we, you know, and the ridiculous tribalism that we're currently enjoying in the world. You know, we see war and pillage everywhere. The, the fictions that people tell themselves about belonging actually are a lid on what we actually want. And what we actually want is really very unpalatable, um, or can be, you know. And, and I, what I find distressing about the weasel being out from under the cocktail cabinet is that it's so much work to put it back under. As Alex said, society is a fiction and a construct, and we put a lid on what we want. He also mentioned the quote, the weasel under the cocktail cabinet, a reference to Harold Pinter, who once replied to a reporter's question, what are your plays about, with the weasel under the cocktail cabinet. The weasel represents the menacing side of ourselves, our more violent, animal, unpredictable desires that lie under the polite guise of social constructs or under the cocktail cabinet. I feel this relates to sex so much, and this episode is all about exploring what normal sex is and the meaning of sex under that cocktail cabinet. To answer this question, I knew there was one person I had to speak to. His name is Buck Angel, and he is a trans man, activist, and porn star whose moniker is The Man with a Pussy. Now 58 years old, Buck grew up as a lesbian woman and transitioned when he was in his 20s. Considered a controversial voice in the trans community, he is not afraid of speaking his mind. So, here is Buck while he was in LA and I was in London, challenging the idea of normal. <laughs> I know you've got a tattoo on your back. <laughs> I do. And what does that tattoo say? <laughs> it says pervert, but some people think it says perfect. <laughs> I get so freaked out. I'm like, no, it says pervert. I'm all weirded out by perfect, but I'm okay with pervert. <laughs> why, why is that on your back? You know, because I really wanted to, I, I, I think really what happened was, it was early in my transition when I did it. It was with my first wife, who was a professional dominatrix. And I was really starting to explore my pervertedness and my really starting to explore myself as a sexual being. And so I, I, I really saw this pervert word and I was like, oh my God, I'm such a pervert. And I wanted to, I really wanted to sort of, um, celebrate my pervertedness because we're told being a pervert is a bad thing and right pervert is a, a child molester or this or that or some scary man in a trench coat in the bathroom and so I was like nope that's not true not all perverts are that and so I put it on there to sort of empower myself and my 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 coming of, of age of my sexual being and my sexuality so what do you understand by the word pervert or are you are you using it as a kind of like a challenge? No, I don't think I'm using it as a challenge. I'm using it as a, this is who I am. So for me, it was to say that I like all kinds of things that you deem to be perverted. So for mm. example, I'm very much into leather. And so I like leather boots, cigar smoking, like hyper-masculinity, like peeing on each other, like just totally insane gay hardcore man stuff. And so that would be deemed perverted. And so for me, it's not perverted. It's actually awesome and, and sort of just really diving deep into your 
sexual psyche on some level. And so again, we're told that none of these, all of these things are weird and perverted. And I'm like, okay, so I'm going to celebrate my pervertedness. But why is pervert considered a bad space? Who said that? Do you know the actual definition for pervert? I think the definition they're going to say is it's something that perversion is a type of human behavior that deviates from that which is understood to be orthodoxy, orthodox or normal. Although the term perversion can refer to a variety of forms of deviation, it is most often used to describe sexual behaviors that are considered particularly abnormal, repulsive and obsessive. See? all of those things. It's very, it's a negative thing. And so I guess for me, I wanted to make it a positive thing. If things like transgress, transgressive things or things that are, are the anti-normal or are a bit, or rather just a bit outside the box. Yeah. If they, if everything became really boring and standard, would that take away the fun? Yes, of course it would. You're right. That's the whole point. Why do you think people are always seeking something different? Even sexually, they're seeking because it does get boring. We're human beings and human beings are not like monolithic. <laughs> we're not when we're not just going to be okay with black and white. We're not. We're always seeking. That's why the world is in turmoil right now, because we are actually changing from a space where we have been on some level very... Um, very stagnant as humans, I think. And I, and, I, and I do think it's why the world is going through COVID, going through a lot of ch changes now with presidency. And because we have given this idea that this, th that this is normal and the people don't, aren't normal. I don't think the world is normal, whatever that means, but we keep shoving, we keep shoving in us into these spaces. And so that's where perversion came from because we shove people in these spaces of, nope, you can't do that because then you're a weirdo and it's not normal. <laughs> that's the worst word we, we, we ever invented was normal. It should have never been put in our mouths because there's no such thing. Yet people think there is a such thing going back to sex, that there's normal sex, and then there's perversion sex. But I will guarantee you, almost every human out there has some form of perversion sex. If they don't do it physically, they're doing it mentally in their brain. And so it is of the utmost importance that we take away this stigma around sex. And if you want to get penetrated in your butt and you're a biological man, that does not make you gay. It doesn't make you anything other than a person who's experimenting <laughs> with a sexual space. How can we get back to that idea that experimenting is positive and experimenting is okay and it's your body and you can do whatever you want with your body as long as it's consensual. It's just, it's, it's so basic that I, we veered from that. So now everything is perverted when it's not normal. Buck raised some really important and interesting areas that I want to explore throughout this episode. The first one is fetishes and the history of fetishes. Buck mentioned, just in passing, casually as you do, peeing on each other, which you might know as being the fetish of a golden shower, but it was originally coined as undinism, and it was called that after the water nymph Undine. It was coined by a groundbreaking sexologist called Havelock Ellis. He was the first person to use the word fetish in its current psychosexual way. Before then, a fetish was actually a religious idol, an object regarded with superstitious respect. And I guess that meaning is still kind of present in our current understanding of the word fetish. 
as an object, body part or thing imbued with a power to arouse. Havelock Ellis himself practiced what he preached and found himself aroused by the sight of a woman urinating. So he himself was a, what would you say, an undernist? So Havelock Ellis was quite extraordinary. He wrote this Encyclopedia of Sex in seven volumes in 1897. So he's a late Victorian and the encyclopedia is called Studies in the Psychology of Sex. Havelock Ellis cracked open a conversation about sexuality and explicitly called for an end to Victorian reticence on the subject of sex. Amazingly, he wrote about the normality of autoeroticism. Anyone? That's actually masturbation. And foot fetishes. Another issue that Buck raises is the idea of what is normal and how it changes and will continue to change, I think, over time. I asked him why pornography and sex work were considered perverted. Here's Buck. I'd say religion, for sure. I think, you know, that, and I'm not anti-religion. I'm just anti, anti sort of organized or forcing your beliefs upon me. Uh, that said, I do believe that the world is run through uh, the dominance of Christianity and in, in, that, in the church. And I think that those beliefs have been instilled in many people that sex is for procreation, that sex is between a man and a woman, <laughs> are all these ideas. And so because of that, pornography and sex work have always been put in this space of sort of like um, the bad, you know, perverted space when actually people out there know that Jesus, <laughs> that Jesus was a cool dude and that he actually hung out with the prostitutes. <laughs> <laughs> so I think it's kind of funny that the Christians are telling us it's a bad thing to do. But I do think that it has the majority of the reason why we have stigma is, you know, I think Christianity has taught people that it's, it's not, uh, it's just not the place to be flaunting your body or sex. And it's a private space. Atheists at some point were probably Christians Right. So do you think that most atheists at some point in their life were some followed some form of religion? And then what happened is that so they came out of that religion. But on some level that I think they got brainwashed in this idea, because I do think it's a brainwashing that we have done, because prior to Christianity or things taking over this idea that they're the voice of the world, everybody had sex. Well, look at the Romans. They were like going nuts <laughs> and everybody was enjoying their bodies. And then all of a sudden something happened, something happened. Cause back in the day, all kinds of cultures. And, you know, I lived in the Yucatan in Mexico. They, and they actually talked about sex. Like if you go into all the Mayan ruins, there's always big penises and like, you know, worshiping the women, the pregnant women, and like really just sort of being okay with bodies and, and penises and things that now we're like so weirded out by. So what happened, right? Because I do think we celebrated these things prior to something. And so for me, I see the church and Christianity and this dominance of how we're supposed to be. Buck mentioned that other societies and religions in different times in history have treated sex and considered sex differently to how we do now. Sex and perversions only really started to be clinically explored and published in the Western world in the late 19th century. But that doesn't mean that every society from 1900 all the way back to the first civilizations were as reticent about sex as the Victorians, and it doesn't mean that they weren't exploring their kinkier sides back then. For example, 
The earliest sex manual is probably Chinese, written around 2600 BC, and focuses on the Taoist beliefs that sexual satisfaction was vital for the health and happiness in both the woman, the yin, and the man, yang. 4,500 years later takes us to the 1972 sex manual, The Joy of Sex, written, I'd like to add, by the aptly named Alex Comfort. The Joy of Sex, with its loving sex illustrations, suddenly seems wildly late to the game. And this 1972 sex manual is still 2,000 years after the famous Indian manual, the Kama Sutra, which means in English, teachings on desire. Karma means pleasure, and sutra means text. It was written in the 3rd century AD and treats pleasure as an art and covers every aspect of love, not just sex. It talks about relationships. In fact, the sex bit is only a small part of the book. So where these ancient sex manuals seem to be quite wholesome and loving and treat sexual pleasure as something between married couples that should be used to improve health and fertility and just a happy life. I did come across a 15th century Tunisian sex manual, which, although is written for the sexual satisfaction of married couples, does actually get quite kinky. It's called The Perfumed Garden, and in it the writer details various sex positions and explores each one. It was the seventh sex position which caught my eye. And uh, in English, it translates as piercing with the lance. And it either reads like something out of Fifty Shades of Grey or an Ikea instruction manual. Quote, You suspend the woman from the ceiling by means of four cords attached to her hands and feet. Her middle of her body is supported by a fifth cord arranged so as not to hurt her back. Her position should be so that if you stand upright before her, her vagina should just face your member, which you introduce into her. You then communicate to the apparatus a swinging motion, first pushing it slightly from you and then drawing it towards you again. In this way, your weapon will alternately enter and retire from its sheath, you taking care to hit the entrance on her approach. This action you continue till the ejaculation arrives. End quote. Well, if you Google sex wing into Amazon, this this is exactly what this reads as. I mean, who thought that married couples in 15th century Tunisia were having this much fun? The same author also lists nicknames for the penis and the vagina, and one such name for the penis he comes up with is Jingle Bells. Hmm. The funny thing is, in 1970, a group of men actually had a fetish for tying bells to their penises. In 1970, Penthouse magazine received a letter from a reader who confessed to be part of a club called The Bell Circle. To quote the book The Curious History of Dating Jane Austen to Tinder by Nikki Hodgson, The Bell Circle was a group of men who attached cat collar bells to their penises. And as one such member of The Bell Circle wrote to Penthouse magazine, our most recent achievement occurred last week in the men's lavatory at Victoria Station when the eight of us played bells across the water, much to the enjoyment, if not edification, of many onlookers. I assume the bell circle playing their song was like a, a musical prelude, a starter before the, the main dramatic action began, but they're congregating in a lavatory 
the thrill of doing things in secret, reminded me of what Buck said, that the idea of transgression in itself, the idea of things being secret, is itself a turn-on. The Victorian sexologist mentioned before, Havelock Ellis, wrote that the sexual secrecy of life is disastrous. But when I spoke to Jacob Bird, a.k.a. drag queen Dina Lux, he explored the link between the thrills of dark rooms and the turn-on of the clandestine. Here's Jacob. You know, there is a there is a obviously a stereotype that gay men are more promiscuous, and I definitely know straight women and bi women or just women who are as promiscuous. I know straight men who are as promiscuous, but I think I you know maybe because my friendship group as well, there's a lot of promiscuous people. But there's definitely also within the gay community a history of like because it was criminalized, you had to be clandestine about it, and. It therefore had to be kind of promiscuous because you did it with who you didn't know in fields whatever or in you know forests or on the heath or whatever like that or lose um and as a sort of like a sort of um kindred spirit with like the past gaze that has a lot of an allure for me so like yeah it's a threat and also it makes me feel like i'm really gay so like i went to ibiza recently and they had lots of dark rooms there. And I went in the dark room and like, it was like one of those dark rooms where you can kind of see people. And I was like, oh, kind of weird. I don't actually fancy any of you, so I'm gonna go away. But I was having a, a wee afterwards in the urinals. And I got like, I've never been like cruised before. I got like properly cruised by this guy. And he like, literally, it took about three seconds. He like looked at me, looked down at my penis, looked back at me, took my hand and just took me into a bathroom stool. And next thing I know, I was having sex and I was like, this is amazing. Like, I feel so gay. Like, this is like, it was it, like, like, I just, it, it, I felt, it feels like, and that maybe this is, I don't know if this is uh, sort of facile or like a really like silly connection to make, but it did make me feel like really gay. Like, it reminds you of like the, the way people had to operate and the, how lucky we are now, but it kind of like, it's like a different, and did, there's that, there was that Tate queer exhibition. Uh, recently, and it was all uh, the, uh, I, what I liked was the way in which the history was written because they had things like they had a little box of buttons, which was a guy took a button from every man he slept with in the Heath um, to like know who they not know who they were, but like a memory of this man he never knew who just like you know fucked him in the ass, but he like took a little button. And I love things like these like different ways of narrating history, and I was like, this is like a a weird like queer lineage of like. By, like via practice, and I was like, maybe that's also romanticizing it. But I, I really liked it. Um, can not you, the sex act. Can you act. explain for people who don't know what a dark room is? So a dark room is like either at a sex club or at a club. You'll have like a room that you go into, maybe like through some curtains or something, and inside it's pitch black, and all you hear is like some panting and slopping and whatever, and. My first time in a dark room was also in Ibiza at this club that's no longer there called Amphora, I think, um, which apparently is really bleak. Um, and my friend's like, go in it, go in it. And you go in it and within a second, just someone was sucking my penis. And I had no idea who they were, what they were. It was just a person was doing that. And then, you know, you left when you were finished. And you could, you could sit in there all night on your knees and wait for people or you could like go in there. I used to just go in there when I was bored and then you'd get a blowjob and leave again. It was so funny and it was so novel to me. I had no idea. It was just so novel to me. And they have, they have things in London called, um, all over the world, but I've only been to one in London. They've like saunas. They're like, 
gay bathhouses. Where, like in the inheritance. Like in the inheritance, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and you go in there and you you know, take off your clothes and you wear a towel and it's kind of these like, the one I went to, I went there with my friends because we were all having dinner and then my friend was like, you've never been to one? Like, oh my God, we're getting an Uber right now. We're going. And we went to this one called Chariots that I don't think is there anymore. I was like, they had this like plunge pool. It's hard to say. It's like a plunge pool where the sides were like, 10 feet high, but the water only four feet. And so a viewing platform right above and then would just watch you masturbating. And it was like lit from the bottom with this blue light and a Medusa head underneath. And I was just floating there naked (laughs) as these men were just watching. I was like, this feels like I'm in this weird art house movie, but I'm in this like chlorine stinking weird underground club. What the? is going on and I, I got I eventually got really like booked out by the whole experience because some guy was like trying to have sex with me and I was like no and I like ran away <laughs> like got my clothes and I was like we're going home like Tom come back um, but yeah it's weird it's amazing I love them I'm really upset they're being shut down it's like really awful that they're being gentrified and all these like places for like queers are going away but I wish I'd used them more Jacob talking about the idea of darkness and secrecy being a turn-on, even when there is no need to hide anymore, signals the power of the mind when it comes to sex. And Buck Angel said that he guaranteed most people had anti-normal fantasies, at least in their head. And thinking again back to what Alex said at the beginning of the episode, when he mentioned one of the theories that killed off the intelligent Neanderthal species was that we, Homo sapiens, outwitted them because we have imagination. Well, our ability to think in metaphor, to imagine things that are not really there, is, I think, the basis of sexual fantasies. But what happens when we try to take our fantasies from inside our minds and into the bedroom, when we try to convert them into real life? Paul, who's in his late 30s, had an opinion on the subject. Here's Paul. This is the problem with fantasies, is that fantasies are fantasies for a reason. Uh, Now, I won't go into it, but there were certain fantasies in my 20s that I chased after, and it never held up to what I imagined it would be. The, The whole thing with fantasy is that it should stay fantasy, because trying to recreate something that you have uh, created as an ideal is impossible. So... Say, for example, your fantasy was to sleep with five people. And you go, okay, that's my aim now. I just want to have five people all in the same bed. And then you realise that actually the one that you fancy fancies someone else. And then you're kind of chasing them and then you feel a little bit insecure about it. And then there's the one that no one likes, seems to be the only one that's interested in you. And you're kind of having to please them and not enjoy it while you're watching someone that you really fancy getting on with someone else. And then you kind of try and get in and then you're pushed away or whatever it is. It's never going to work out the way that you want unless you, I don't know, pay the people and say, this is exactly how I want it. But even then, you know that it's not real. So you will never make a fantasy reality. And that, I think, is the biggest problem with chasing fantasies and chasing ideals. Like, this is my ideal man. My ideal man will be six foot three, you know, look great in budgie smugglers, uh, will take me to the gym every morning, will make my breakfast, like, none of it, none of it exists. 
And when I asked Hannah about fantasies and the imagination, she had some advice about how to turn those fantasies into reality. Here's Hannah. Mm, mm. Yeah, because my fantasies from threesomes comes from watching porn or, you know, watching films and you see it and it all looks so easy and glamorous and everyone's kind of performing and you're not, um, I suppose you're not, it's not like 3am after a night out and you've made the kind of um, questionable decision to go home with two people that you barely know <laughs> um, to go have a threesome. And that's basically the situation in both cases. Um and so there was obviously performance issues for one of the one of the guys, and also you know I very much confirmed to me, um, the one of them confirmed to me how heterosexual I am because <laughs> I didn't, yeah I didn't feel, or it could have been I just wasn't attracted to the girl, I don't know. Um, but I've never really I've been very much, um, it didn't persuade me that I was into girls or I enjoy that turns me on or was arousing for me. And it, yeah, it, the one where it was me, a girl and a guy, it did feel, you know, at one point he's kind of sat across the room watching us and I felt, oh, this isn't, I'm not enjoying this because like I'm going down this girl and like, where's like where's my <laughs> enjoyment? Um, so yeah, and I kind of quick, swiftly, after about 20 minutes, maybe I was like, yeah, I'm out, I'm going home. <laughs> and, and that was that. And then the other one, you know, with two guys, um, they were such sweet people. They weren't bad. It was just not not the right conditions or, you know, venues. And I think that's what it is. I think off-the-cuff threesomes are not something I think just from my experience, I think there needs to be a bit more planning in it. Or, you know, you have to be a bit more comfortable and know what you want. I mean, you can get, not that I've got one, but I've heard that people have these like threesome apps and stuff where you can make the executive, you can, you know, it's premeditated, <laughs> premeditated threesomes rather than, you know, in the moment kind of thing. So, yeah, I, I don't know, maybe I, I just from my experience, the, the um, reality has not um, improved or matched in the slightest, uh, the fantasy. So do you think that fantasies work best when they're kept to, in the imagination? Do you think they're spoiled somehow if they're played out? It's hard because it's your expectations, right? I mean, you know, there's expectations about everything you do, like expectations of your romantic partner, expectation for your jobs, um, your family relationships, you know, your sex life, you know, we, we see so much, we take in so much and we kind of want it to look like, you know, these cookie cutter fantasies rather than expecting, actually, if we lower our expectations a bit, the fantasy could be part of that. You know what I mean? I think the point of fantasy is that it's always going to be heightened. You know, I don't, I think it's going to be rare unless you're, you know, I can't, I'm just trying to think of a situation where your fantasy would actually play, like your actual fantasy would actually play out. But I don't think, I think that, I think that only works if you plan it because, you know, you tell someone what you want. This is what I want you to do. This is what I, this is how I want it. You know, I think you can achieve your fantasy if you do a lot of planning to make it that fantasy, to make it that way. Um, but I think it's just allowing, I suppose, allowing things to maybe not be, 100% that fantasy, maybe like 70%, maybe, or, you know, 60%, just allowing yourself to enjoy it, even if it's not, you know, exactly how it played out in your last, like, you know, Pornhub viewing, 
or Balesa. Balesa is actually a female-friendly porn site, which um, I very much support. So, according to Hannah, the key to threesomes and fantasies is organised fun. And what is organised fun in this context? It's a sex party. So, sex parties should be fun, right? But the fantasy doesn't always go to plan. Here's Corin, rapper, a.k.a. The Last Skeptic, and he's 34 years old. So, look, let me say uh, I'm, not, I'm not a pro in this field. It was one of these... Uh, this. This this year, I had like certain things I wanted to tick off my list of things that I haven't done in my life. You know, um, like what? I've never ridden a horse. Really want to do that. Still haven't done it. Never been skiing or snowboarding. Uh, so I really want to do that. Uh, I've still never had eggnog. So I'm gonna have to have to have to do that this this uh, Christmas. And the other one is going to a sex party. So it's a good, nice list of things. So all of those things sound like the kind of things that Elf would have on his like Christmas to-do list. Yes. Like yes. tobogganing, <laughs> and eggnog, and then it's like, and a sex party. And a sex party, yeah. yeah. Basically a little filthy Christmas elf. This I do look like a hobbit. So yeah, hairy feet. I'm just basically a dirty hobbit is me. Um, so yeah. So I, I really wanted to go. Um, I... Started speaking to uh, an amazing woman called Sophie who runs a thing called Risque, which is now called Lovers and Friends, I believe. Um, the, uh, yeah, it's a public thing, so I can speak about it, uh, where she kind of video calls and, and, and chats to people and, and makes sure people are doing it for the right reasons. Uh, and then she hosts cocktail evenings where people uh, that are interested in swinging um, go and meet each other and hook up and exchange numbers, uh, but don't actually have sex on the premises. Uh, and they had one actual full-on sex party that I went to with a, a good female friend of mine, a platonic female friend of mine, because um, we both just wanted to experience uh, what it was like. And um, I was so nervous. Oh my God, I was so nervous. Um, there was like a downstairs where, with a bar and a DJ and stuff. So uh, hang on, wait, where did it actually take place? Like in a warehouse. But it was fully staffed, so there was like a playroom upstairs, which was staffed by people that were, you know, cl- making sure it was clean, handing out condoms and lube and whatever you'd want. Um, and yeah, and the downstairs was like every- everyone was in like uh, robes and-, and underwear or just underwear. And um, yeah, and then you could go up and join in in the playroom if you felt so comfortable to do so. Um, but yeah, I you know, I went there with my friend. I mean, the first thing that I, that I realized is that I'd never actually seen a hard dick in my life, in real life. And then to actually see like 50 was a little bit like, Oh, right. Okay. This is, this is interesting, an interesting experience. Um, <laughs> my friend Adam had an expression once, which was a forest of cocks. Right. Yeah. That's what it was. It was, <laughs> yeah. Oh, it was a forest. Uh, there's a lot of sex, obviously, because it's a sex party. Um, we didn't, you know, we didn't get ourselves involved uh, in, in that time because obviously my, my friend, bless her, we're platonic. Um, but we watched, we watched a lot. And it was really interesting to kind of be a part of. But yeah, I... Why did you guys not get involved? 
Um, I think if we were uh, intimate like that, I think it would have been a lot easier to just get involved or get go into a corner and do our own thing and then see if anyone else wanted to kind of join in and in a more natural way. But if I was to just go in the middle and just start wanking, I feel like it might be a bit weird. So I feel like uh, I, I spoke to, to Sophie who runs it and I said, is it weird that I didn't get involved? She said, no, a lot of people don't for the first few times they go to one of these parties. Um, you're still trying to find your way. Like I've, I don't think I've ever been been fully comfortable with my naked body and so it's part of uh becoming comfortable with that uh in an environment um you know where there's loads of other people around is a hugely emancipating freeing and beautiful thing but it takes a little while to get used to so you know baby steps um i'm, I'm definitely you know I would I'd definitely be interested in going to another one, but probably with someone that I'm intimate with so that we can experience it together and uh, in, in kind of in a safer, smaller way first. Was there anything about the experience of the, the people there, what they looked like, what they were doing that, that kind of took you by surprise, you weren't expecting? I could tell that people, when people had taken Viagra, um, because they were just straight up going for it and almost looking in the distance like while they were fucking that was a bit strange like they were just fucking like you know like a pneumatic drill and not actually connected to the person they were having sex with and that was really interesting to me because that i can't say i was fully turned on most of the time watching it um because yeah because of that again like i said before um personality is the sexiest fucking thing and having a chat, even if it's a short chat, or even if it's just a smile or a connection, or you're looking at someone and you feel like there's a vibe, that is hot. Like, and if I'm just going and sticking my dick in something, there's no, I don't know if I find that hot. You know, the moment I was really turned on is by this young couple and they uh, really wanted a threesome, a young attractive couple and they, they saw this attractive girl and they were all naked and they all started chatting away and and you could see they were all a bit nervous and then like the two girls went in for a kiss headbutted each other both got nosebleeds and they both had to like clean it up it was hilarious like I, it was so funny and then after they cleaned up they started getting together and you know what i was so fucking hard like sorry to be really like uh, graphic about it but i was so turned on by this situation because it was so human like it was so real they were really tentative and nervous around each other and then then they then they had this hugely human experience of like them being you know <laughs> having a nosebleed they were all naked and then then they had sex and it was hot like i love that i love the hu humanity of it it's funny that even sex parties can't really be spontaneous. The fantasy requires rules, red tape, baby steps taken to feel comfortable and relaxed. I was also surprised by his next story, when he kicked something else off his bucket list. Here's Corin again. Connection is, is, a, is a big key. You know, for me, all the best sex that I've had has been with people that, that really make me laugh. Not, not during sex, but they've really made me laugh uh, beforehand. You know, I really feel comfortable um, and that makes me so much uh, more attracted to them. Um, you know, I've been in situations where you would think it would, it would be amazing sex. Like I, I had sex with someone that, that has acted in pornographic films Um I got diplomatic. I said that, um, but and it, it it was it was 
it wasn't great. It wasn't great. And that's no disrespect to her as a human being. Uh, I think it's more that it was play by numbers. I wasn't necessarily uh, into it. You know what I mean? I wasn't into the scenario. So I felt like I did it. Did it like, you know, everything I should have done, you know, and then <laughs> all of the filth that I should have done. And I didn't really enjoy it. So so how did you meet this porn star? Uh, she came to one of my shows and she liked my music. And when did you find out she was a porn star? Uh, I, I'm pretty sh- I mean, I knew pre- pretty soon. I mean, she told me. So, uh, yeah, when I first met her, I went home, watched a couple and then... Uh, Arranged the time to hang out. Yeah. So you went into that experience wanting the experience? I guess so. Yeah, I guess so. I mean I was I was a lot younger. Um and I think as you grow you want to you want to experiment. You want to experiment and, and push your own boundaries and learn about a lot of different things. And, you know, as a, as a pig-headed, like, uh, man, you also want to, to see what that's like to experience having sex with someone that, that, that is a porn star. <laughs> um, so, but honestly, the one thing I will say is that it wasn't a great sexual experience for me. It what, There was no connection. There was no kind of like I want to be here because I want to hang out with you I'm not saying every sexual experience you have needs to be deep in love or or lust but you have to really respect one another and and have an understanding um in order to 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 give yourself over to play and like you know you know push push each other's like boundaries a little bit but within the safety net that you have with each other and I don't think either of our hearts were in it you know Corin emphasised the importance of connection. This again points to the idea that sex has a lot to do with the stimulation of the mind as much as stimulation of the body. And this is backed up by science. Using fMRI, which stands for Functional Magnetic Resonance Imaging, scientists have pinpointed a number of regions of the brain that kick in when people feel sexual desire. And this is the interesting bit. Brain regions that are associated with understanding the thoughts and intentions of other people also seem linked with sexual feelings. That means, scientifically, connection is important for sex. It means that understanding what someone else is thinking and feeling is a turn-on. And I think this links to the idea of why dirty talk is a part of sex. And this is where history is really fascinating because dirty talk is actually advised in the second century AD book Ovid wrote called The Ars Amatoria, The Art of Love. Ovid advises in the book, don't leave out seductive coos and delightful murmurings. Don't let wild words be silent in the middle of your games. The power of writing about sex is is nothing new. Reading about sex and fantasy clearly lights up the brain. And in the same way that television didn't kill radio, visual porn hasn't killed erotic fiction. I mentioned Fifty Shades of Grey, and it is a landmark because it sold hundreds of millions of copies worldwide. In fact, romance and erotica novels outperform all other genres. It's annually a billion-dollar industry. And erotic fiction has been delighting people long before Fifty Shades. In 1665, 
a French book was published called L'École des Filles, or, as it's known in English after its 1680 translation and publication, The School of Venus. It was so erotic and filthy, the famous diarist Samuel Pepys was so turned on by it, he skipped church to read it, then burnt it in a conflagration of lust and shame. Burn after reading, as the Coen brothers would say. We know this because Pepys wrote about it in his diary. On the 13th of January, 1688, he wrote, I stopped at Martin's, my bookseller, where I saw the French book called Les Choles de Filles. But when I come to look in it, it is the most bawdy, lewd book that ever I saw. I was ashamed of reading in it. This book, The School of Venus, or The Lady's Delight, is described as a sex manual to understand, quote, this mystery of fucking. It's a dialogue between two women, Katie, virginal of body and mind, and Frances, who instructs her about what sex is all about. Frances memorably likens the scrotum to, quote, something like a purse containing bollocks, not much unlike our Spanish olives, which makes me question either how big their olives were or how tiny the men. The School of Venus actually reads as very fresh and modern, as Francis advises to the younger Katie to acquire what we would call a fuck buddy, or as she says, a fucking friend, one that will not blab. I got an actor, Veronica, to read an extract from the School of Venus. The only vocab you need to know here is quim, which means a certain four-letter word beginning with C. Here's Veronica. He will thrust his prick into thy quim and give thee a world of delight. I am confident Mr. Roger cannot but be a good fuckster, but you must know that the pleasure of fucking is joined with a thousand other endearments. One night above all the rest, my husband being on the merry pin, shewed me a very many pretty pranks, which before I knew not, and which truly were pleasant enough. First, he comes up a private pair of stairs unto me, when all of the household is in bed. He finds me sometimes asleep, sometimes awake, and to lose no time, he undresseth himself. He comes and lies down by me. When he begins to be warm, he lays his hands on my breasts. Finding me awake, he tells me he's so weary with walking from place to place all day long, and that he is scarce able to stir, still feeling and stroking my breasts, calling me his dear rogue and telling me how happy he is in me. Afterwards, he strokes my smooth thighs, quim, belly, and breasts, takes the nipples of my breasts in his mouth, and doing all he can to content himself, makes me take off my smock and views me all over. Then he puts his prick into my hand again. Sometimes he thrusts it between my thighs, sometimes between my buttocks, rubbing my quim with the top of it, which makes me mad for horsing. And then he kisseth my eyes, my mouth, and my quim again. And calling me his dear, his love, his soul, begets upon me, thrusting his stiff standing tasks into my quim. And to our mutual satisfaction, he fucks me stoutly. My dear Kate, how can you imagine otherwise? You can find The School of Venus on Amazon. It's quite a read. 
And also check out the Instagram for The Cupid Couch, at The Cupid Couch, for some of the painted pornography that went with the book, the cover of which is what looks like women perusing a row of dildos hanging up like clothes on a rack, like some kind of 17th century Anne Summers. It's really interesting how the power of the mind and its desire to read fantasy and erotica has flourished even during the pandemic and lockdown. As The Guardian reported, quarantine-related porn started to appear online and erotica writers began to self-publish lockdown romances on Amazon. And one titan of writing definitely turned himself on by writing the strangest most filthy erotic letters that definitely push some boundaries. That titan is Joyce, a.k.a. James Joyce, the Irish novelist who wrote Ulysses. Here is an Irish actor and friend of mine called Porrick reading an extract from one of the love letters Joyce wrote to his beloved Nora. This is a letter that a 27-year-old James Joyce wrote to Nora Barnacle, who was 25 at the time, on the 8th of December 1909, in Dublin. My sweet little whorish Nora, I did as you told me, you dirty little girl, and pulled myself off twice when I read your letter. I am delighted to see that you do like being fucked arseways. Yes, now I can remember that night when I fucked you for so long backwards. It was the dirtiest fucking I ever gave you, darling. My prick was stuck up in you for hours, fucking in and out under your upturned rump. I felt your fat, sweaty buttocks under my belly and saw your flushed face and mad eyes. At every fuck I gave you, your shameless tongue came bursting out through your lips. And if I gave you a bigger, stronger fuck than usual, fat, dirty farts came spluttering out of your backside. You had an arse full of farts that night, darling, and I fucked them out of you, big, fat fellows long windy ones, quick little merry cracks and a lot of tiny little naughty farties ending in a long gush from your hole. It is wonderful to fuck a farting woman when every fuck drives one out of her. I think I would know Nora's fart anywhere. I think I could pick hers out in a room full of farting women. It's a rather girlish noise not like the wet, windy fart which I imagine fat wives have. It is sudden and dry and dirty like what a bold girl would let off in fun in a school dormitory at night. I hope Nora will let off no end of her farts in my face so that I may know their smell also. Good night, my little farting Nora, my dirty little fuckbird. There is one lovely word, darling, you have underlined to make me pull myself off better. Write me more about that and yourself, sweetly, dirtier, dirtier. Jim. So, nice little James Joyce was quite the dude, and apparently Nora was quite, uh, musical? These private letters and saucy books show us that sex was not invented in 1963, as the English poet Philip Larkin joked in a poem, Annus Mirabilis. Going back to Joyce and his love of Nora's farts, 
another genius, this time a musical one, was turned on, fascinated and delighted to no end by eschatology and was allegedly into coprophagia. Yes, um, that genius is none other than Mozart. We're not taught this stuff in school and it means we get such a sanitised, literally, account of history. His coprophagia is alleged, but Mozart definitely wrote a lot about that arena in his letters. On the 5th of November 1777, a 21-year-old Mozart wrote to his cousin and possible love interest, Marianne, quote, By the love of my skin, I shit on your nose so it runs down your chin. He continues, I now wish you a good night, shit in your bed with all your might, sleep with peace on your mind, and try to kiss your own behind. And if it couldn't get any weirder, Mozart wrote a ballad called Lech mich im Arsch, which translates literally, yup, as you guessed it, lick me in the arse. The Wikipedia entry politely adds the important information that it is a canon in B-flat major, in case you're wondering. Here is a snippet. So there you have it. Mozart wrote a beautiful piece of music singing Kiss My Ass. So, genius and a delight in the clandestine, or the, quote, perverted, to use Buck's word, are not mutually exclusive. But the link between Joyce and Mozart here is also that even if they carried out their kinks in the bedroom, they certainly got a kick from writing about it and thinking about it. This episode has questioned the meaning of the word normal when it comes to sex. What's normal when it comes to the bedroom? It changes according to place and time. The first major book on sexual deviations was called The Psychopathia Sexualis, and it was written in 1886 by an Austro-German psychiatrist called Dr. Kraft Ebbing. He himself thought that any form of recreational sex was a perversion of the sex drive. He also listed homosexuality and bisexuality as sexual deviations, this is proof that taboos are social constructs and things have changed. However, he was ahead of his time in other ways, as he defined certain kinks for the very first time, introducing them to the English language. Such examples are sadism, from the name of the Marquis de Sade, and masochism, from the name of the writer Leopold von Sacher-Massoch, who wrote the play Venus in Furs. However, Dr. Kraft Ebbing did also list another deviant sexual practice, one that I don't think anyone, no matter how experimental, could say was normal, and that is necrophilia. Furthermore, going back to the reference to sadism and the Marquis de Sade, his text, The 120 Days of Sodom, is still so deeply shocking, violent and criminal from its delight in child rape and torture. 
it makes the earlier reference to the golden shower seem like holding hands. So it is really complicated. If, as Alex said, social constructs and society is just a veneer hiding the weasel under the cocktail cabinet, where does normal sex end and fetish begin? And why do we go for fetishes? Why do we have to push the boat out? And do fetishes, as we repeat them, start to get tiring? To quote the book Lady Chatterley's Lover by D.H. Lawrence, which was itself banned for sexual explicitness, sex is really only touch, the closest of all touch, and it's touch we're afraid of. We're only half conscious and half alive. We've got to come alive and aware. Especially the English have got to get in touch with one another, a bit delicate and a bit tender. It's our crying need. I think that's it. It's our crying need. We need to touch and we need to come alive. And whatever it takes for someone to come alive, that's the key. This feeling is encapsulated by a poem I love called I Need the Rapture. It's by a poet and actor, Alice Sinclair. She writes under the name Alan Moon, and you can find more of her work on her Instagram, at Alan Moon. Here is Alice reading her poem. Staring into the old crusty shell of another time, waiting for someone to batter me between two sides of themselves, swaying from one hip to the other, shouting at the band to play faster. I want to wear my miniskirt. I want to ask a man to ask me for his number and get spat on by the rowdy breath of enthusiasm. I need the rapture. I need them to let me onto the tracks so I can stand there, face on, legs spread, as a train comes screaming at my heart. The paper chains are killing me. They're drooping above me in a sarcastic, melancholy way, telling me, baby, Christmas isn't here yet, but you're welcome to the jukebox. A man behind the bar is shouting as I think back to cramming in a tube and the feeling of flesh upon flesh and the freedom of spontaneity. I'll order another wine. I'll beg someone to come closer. And when they do, only then will I feel real again. The poem points to a delight in violence, in sex, a yearning for roughness and pleasure and pain and spit all mingled into one to make the speaker feel alive. Her legs are spread against the oncoming violence of a phallic train, yearning for the collision of human connection. And that's what all this sex seems to be about, whether fetish or fantasy, vanilla or spicy, S&M or just spooning, pinching ourselves to feel alive. So how do we keep coming alive? The paradox of sex and keeping it interesting seems as paradoxical as the idea of love and trying to keep a balance between peace and fireworks in relationships. Or, more eloquently put by Alex, who you heard earlier, we were talking about the writer Milan Kundera and two of his books, the famous Unbearable Lightness of Being and his last novel called The Festival of Insignificance and what those books say about fetish, sex, love, and the painful truth of life. Here's Alex, and he's my last guest for this episode. There's a later, in fact, Kundra's last novel. There's a scene in that in which a, a feather drifts down in, a, in, a, in a, a dinner party, in a sort of party where everyone's getting drunk, and people sort of try to gather this feather, but it's, 
It's sort of about their frivolousness, but it's still subject to gravity. In the end, it still falls to the ground. And in Unbearable Lights of Being, Thomas, who is this Lothario, you know, in the movie with Daniel Day-Lewis, he, how many times does he say, take off all your clothes? You know, he's, he's a master of seduction. And he begins to realize that it's nothing and that the weight in life lies in his marriage. And they have this glorious dog called Karenian, who's not named after Anna. He's named after Anna's husband, but is a female dog. So it's quite a sort of confusing metaphor, but this wonderful, wonderful dog who lives between them is sort of their weight, you know, their, but, and as they become closer and they move to the country and they, he begins to realize that the, the, the heaviness of life and the lightness perhaps lie in this marriage. Karenian dies and they have to nurse him to death. And it's, it's so poignant because it's, it tells you that, I don't know whether Kundra meant this at all, this is what I got from it, which is some sense in which however much you pull towards something, you're always losing something as you're gaining something. And I think the idea that you can have this sort of be exotic and erotic and live a sort of sexual life where you just, nothing matters. No, there are no commitments, there's nothing. Uh, I think I read somewhere once that Kundra was making a specific response to Nietzsche in some ways. Nietzsche says that life only has weight because it's lived over many times. I don't know if he believed in reincarnation. There was something like that. Whereas Kundra says that the great challenge for a human life is that you do only get one shot. And therefore, within it, there's this push and pull between the sorrow of that. As, as Kafka said, the meaning of life is that it stops. And so you have that sort of weight that if you are actually going to commit to someone, you're committing to your life. You're committing to a road that will end. Whereas if you you know, are just gadding about, you can pretend that you don't know that. Whereas when you commit to another person, you also commit to their death. You commit to, you know, so it's a, it's a weighty business. But with it, perhaps, you know, the lightness of life to Nietzsche, you know, the, the sort of non-existence of life, if it's just one life, one human being, it doesn't matter. If it's light, it is all we have. So how do we make it heavy? And how do you combine in that love and desire? How do you put those two things together? So, rather than fetishes and kinks being seen as just a shadowy side of sex and the anti-normal, perhaps it's a rebellion, it's a fight for life, a bid to break free of the shackles and constraints of society. The French word for orgasm is petit mort, meaning a little death. That idea of the paradox of pain and pleasure and sex is encapsulated in that phrase, petit mort as every moan and orgasm takes us a few seconds closer to death. So, have as much sex as you can, be it vanilla or laced with some chilli. And that's the end of this episode. The next episode of The Cupid Couch is Toxic Love. Rose McGowan, Kathy Lett and my guests talk about the red flags to look out for and the perils of damaging relationships from negging to narcissists. My name is Genevieve Gaunt, and you've been listening to The Cupid Couch. <laughs>